passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, so we're going to jump into our text this morning. We've been going through the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel. If you don't have one, that's all right. There's uh, Bibles in your um, chairs in front of you. The, the, the passage will also be on the screen this morning as we work our way through 2 Samuel chapter 6. One of the most formative quotes for me um, in the early years of my Christian walk uh, comes from A.W. Tozer. And he said this, what we think about when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Here's what he means by that. Whatever comes to our minds when we think about God reveals our view of not just what God is like, but really all of life is like. So ask yourself, what, what comes to mind when you think about God? You can talk to any number of people and you'll probably get a different answer. And that's why the testimony of scripture is so important. It's so essential for us. It's because the scriptures give us a picture of what God is like. In the scriptures, we see that God is both merciful and just. We see that God is both king and friend. We see that, that God is both loving and jealous. And to emphasize one of these things at the expense of the others is to have this incomplete understanding of what God is like. And I think that's one of the reasons why this morning's text is such an important one for us. And it's also a surprising text. If you are familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 6, you know where this is going. This passage gives us this clear picture of the awesome holiness of God. And I, and I use that word awesome literally. It's this picture of the holiness of God that, that strikes fear and terror and dread into the people of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's this picture of a God who is so different, so altogether other than we are, that it's really, honestly, it's hard for us to fathom the events of this chapter. Now, there's much that we can learn from this text, so we're going to go ahead and jump right in. But at the, at the core, at the center of this chapter is this concern, this, this heart focus on how we might honor God the Lord with our lives. So everything in this chapter is, is, con is concerned with that, how we might honor the Lord with our lives. This is, this is on display both in failure as well as in triumph. And what we're going to see in this chapter is that this is really just two attempts from David to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. We're going to look at both of these in turn. But before we do that, let's pray once again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God, I confess that all too often those are words that are just on my lips. And I give little thought to the significance, the weight of their meaning. And so as we approach your word this morning, God, we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly 
that you would help us to see, to even feel the weight of your glory. But also, God, that we would see the unfathomable love that you have for those who are far off. A love so great that you made a way for your enemies to enter into your family as daughters and sons. We ask that you would help us through this text to respond to your glory with worship. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned that this text um, is the story of, of David's two attempts to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and look at the first one in verses 1 through 11, starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So the story starts with this mustering of Israel's army. And yet they're not gathering for war as we look at this passage. This is, these people are gathering together, the, the army, the chosen ones of, of David. They're gathering together as an honor guard to escort the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, into Israel's capital city, into Jerusalem. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, and we saw that David had at last established his capital city in Jerusalem. We also saw, probably more important than that, we saw David understanding his role as king. We saw that David understood, he grasped that his role as king wasn't to serve as the, the sole authority of the nation, but rather to point to the true king the king of glory, to use language from Psalm 24 that we read earlier, to point to God himself. That was his role, to serve God's people by pointing them to the true God. And with that in mind, David sets his heart on bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem. And we might say, what exactly is the ark? We have a picture of it that uh, we can throw up on the screens here. The ark from, as, as you can see from these screens or from these pictures, the ark was this, this box, this box that was covered in gold. And on top of the box was this lid, and on the lid were these two cherubim. These cherubim are just angelic creatures. And, and we might say, well, what exactly is the significance of the ark that we see here? In short, the ark emphasized God's presence with his people. So there's two things that we could say, you know what, this is what the ark means for the people of Israel. The first thing is that the ark symbolizes God's presence with his people. Now that's not to say that God lived in the ark, or it's not to say that the ark was this idol as though the pagan nations had idols where they have their gods live among them. And yet it was true that God was uniquely present with his people, and the ark was one of the way that that, ways that, that was symbolized for the people of God. And that's why when we look at the history of Israel, we see Israel moving through the wilderness. And whenever the people of Israel would move from one location to another, and then they'd set up camp, the ark was located in the center of their place of worship. And the place of worship was located in the center of the camp of Israel. There were specifics on where people were supposed to camp when they would make camp. All of this was to emphasize the centrality of the worship of God's people. But more importantly that, than that, it was to emphasize the centrality of God dwelling in their midst. 
What's even more significant than that is because God is dwelling in their midst, there were certain regulations, stipulations that had to be followed in order for that to actually happen. And so the, the, t- the tabernacle, the place where the ark was located, had an inter area called the Holy of Holies where the ark was located. And that place was so holy that only the high priest, one person, was allowed to enter into it only after cleansing themselves, preparing themselves ritually, and only one time a year. So if God's going to dwell among the people of Israel, these are all the, the requirements that have to take place because of God's utter holiness. But the ark didn't just symbolize God's presence with his people, that's certainly true. It also, probably more importantly, symbolized God's rule over his people. The ark was actually considered to be the footstool of the throne of God. The Psalms are filled with this anthropomorphic language, this language that that uses human identity or human pictures to to describe God. You look at Psalm 132. We're going to read Psalm 99 here in a second. What we see is that God sits on his throne in heaven, and his feet rest on the earth on the ark. The ark is called the footstool of the throne of God. So it's this place where symbolically God's rule in the heavens reaches down and is established on the earth. So consider, uh, as I said, Psalm 99. It says this, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Exalt the Lord our God Worship at his footstool, holy is he. Again, remember what that picture of the ark had on the top of the ark was this lid, and on the lid were these cherubim. And so when it says in Psalm 99 that God is enthroned upon the cherubim, it's a reference to the cherubim that we see on the ark. And Psalm 99 is saying that there is this welcome of the people of God to gather together to worship at his footstool. Again, another reference to the ark. So the ark is this symbol of God's presence with his people, but probably more importantly than that, God's rule over his people. So we come back to to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we see David's heart. His desire is for the symbolic rule of God to enter into God's capital city over God's people, and it's an admirable goal. What David wants here, he wants God's reign to be the center point of the people of God. Two, three generations before this, the ark had actually been captured by the Philistines. While it was captured by the Philistines, God intervenes through this uh, miraculous ways and, and brings the ark back to the land of Israel. And yet the ark is left in this place called Kiriath-Jerim, or as our passage calls it, Baal Judah. And it, and it is there under the care of this man named Abinadab, and, and that's actually in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. And for generations, the ark stays there. But David has his heart set on bringing the ark into the center point of Israel's society. And so David gathers together his army here with this intention of bringing the ark from Baal Judah uh, to Jerusalem because it would not do for the king to be on the sidelines. For the king of God to dwell in a place other than the capital city of God's people. And that's the way this chapter begins here. And it should leave us in awe because we have this procession of the king. 
God himself, surrounded by the finest troops of Israel, marching triumphantly into his capital city at long last. Verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So David and his men, they enlist two of the sons of Abinadab. Remember, Abinadab is the one where the ark has been at his house for generations. Uzzah and Ahio are these two sons of Abinadab. And they're going to direct the ark from their father's house all the way to Jerusalem. And so they place the ark on this new cart. And again, intentions are admirable here. They don't want there to be any hints, any chance that something unclean will touch the most holy object of Israel. And so they set it on a, a clean, brand new cart, and they set off on this procession from Baal Judah all the way to Jerusalem, seven, eight miles away. For a frame of reference, that's roughly the distance to Fostoria and then a little bit further. That's the, the journey that this army is making here. And, and this is such a, a big deal that it's also a celebration. That's actually what we see in verse 5. David and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So the people set off here, all of them, David's chosen men, they're the honor guard. And then we also see that the rest of, of, of Israel came out to watch. All of them are rejoicing and we should say, well, wh- well of course they are. Why shouldn't they be rejoicing? Today was the day where the king of glory would be entering into his capital. And this is a God who is worthy of all praise, all honor, all glory that they could muster. And so the crowds are crying out in song. They're worshiping with all sorts of instruments. And I want us to just, just ask ourselves, have, have we ever been a part of a crowd, a, a group of people where there's just this buzz in the air this, this excitement that you can just feel in the air, the anticipation, the joy is so thick that you can almost cut it with a knife, that the place is about to explode in happiness and joy because of the eagerness there. And that's what we see from this procession from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem on that day. Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, put his hand, out his hand to touch the ark, or excuse me, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So at some point along this journey from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem, they're going up this rocky terrain. The oxen who is pulling the cart, one of them stumbles and the cart jostles and the ark begins to slide. And Uzzah has been entrusted by David to get the ark of God to the capital city. And he reaches out his hand to steady the ark in case it falls off the cart, which would be a disaster. And in the excitement of the moment, this passes by almost unnoticed, or at least it would have, except for what takes place next. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. So Uzzah 
reaches out to stop the ark from hitting the ground and instead hits the ground himself as a lifeless corpse. And over the course of of the next few seconds or minutes, we don't really know how long, this excitement in the air turns to confusion and then it turns into terror. And this crowd of tens of thousands of people, they go from joy to terror in moments. And if you've ever been a part of a crowd that panics, it is a terrifying thing. And I think that's what takes place in this moment, that we have people running everywhere. They're fleeing in terror because they begin to realize something has happened in this moment, that God has has broken out against Uzzah, and they're worried that God's going to do the exact same thing. And so people are fleeing everywhere in case they also get struck down in terror. I wonder how many of them really understood what was taking place in that moment. What just happened at the threshing floor of Nacon? Well, the answer is actually given to us all the way back in Numbers chapter 4. God is giving instruction to Moses and to Aaron, the leaders of Israel, on how the ark, how the tabernacle, the, the place of God's presence among his people, how it is to be moved. And it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, the priest shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue and shall put in its poles. And when the priests have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So God had specific requirements on how the ark was to be moved. And part of this, or the reason was because of his holiness. It was all a sign of how different God is from us. No one but the priests were allowed to even look at the ark. So if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they're searching for the ark and then at the very end, you know, they open the ark and that's where, you know, this really bad CGI happens in, in the movie. I mean, it's in the 80s, so it's okay. What's that? It was, awesome. it, was at the, it was awesome at the time. It was also really, really grotesque. That actually did, wouldn't have happened because you weren't allowed to look at the ark in the first place. So Indiana Jones would have been gone too. You had to cover the ark before anyone else could see it. And so that's what the priests were supposed to do. Once that took place, then let's go ahead and throw that picture back up. Then you would put these poles into these rings on the side of the ark. And the Kohathites, this this select group of people, were supposed to carry the ark to its next location. There were very specific rules and regulations on how the ark was to be transported. And God is very, very specific on how this is to be done. Because he says, if anyone touches the ark, they are going to die. So Uzzah is put to death because he touches the ark, even though it may have been with the best of intentions. Probably was done with the best of intentions. And yet, we see that the problem doesn't start after reading Numbers chapter 4, the problem doesn't start with the touch. It actually starts with the decision from Israel and specifically from David on how to transport the ark. 
Rather than having the Kohathites carry the ark with poles as was prescribed, they instead opted to use an oxen-drawn cart. In short, they decided to ignore the commands of God, and even worse, if you've been reading along in First and Second Samuel with us, they actually decided to follow the example of the Philistines. The Philistines were the first ones to transport the ark back in 1 Samuel chapter 6 with a new cart and oxen. So instead of relying on God's word, they're actually relying on this example set by the pagan Philistines earlier in history. Significantly, did you notice what was missing from the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 6 and this gathering of God's people together? Compare it with the end of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Just going to read a a couple excerpts from verses. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 19 starts this way, and David inquired of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 23 and 25 tell us this. And when David inquired of the Lord, and then God responds, and David did as the Lord commanded him. Here in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose. Notably absent here is David consulting the Lord. And at the end of the day, what is in view here is not primarily Uzzah's sin of irreverence, although that is true, but it's actually David's sin of presumption. David assumes that he knows what will honor the Lord rather than consulting with God himself. Still, Uzzah's death is is surprising. Because even though that there's this error, there's this sin against God and his holiness, maybe God could have made his his displeasure clear in a way that didn't result in the death of Uzzah. And perhaps when we're looking at these events, we actually have the same response as David. It says this in verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David is angry with God because of his treatment of Uzzah. He's like, how unfair is this? How how excessive are you being, God? How could you do this, God? We had this day set up to to honor you. This, This powerful day, a celebration of you, and you decide to put someone to death in this moment. Of course, such a reaction reveals a heart that doesn't fully grasp how heinous Sin is in God's eyes. We're blind to how big of an affront our sin is to a holy God. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, gets at the heart of this matter. He says this, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield and its season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When water is added to the dust, it becomes mud, just as God designed it. The ground does not commit cosmic treason. There is nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him, that which by its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the growth and the sky, the groan in the sky and the, and the waters of the sea to groan together in travail, waiting for the day of redemption. 
man. It was man's touch that was forbidden. Listen, God in his kindness doesn't operate this way most of the time. God in his extreme patience often responds with mercy to sin rather than judgment, at least right now. But it would be wrong to interpret the mercy of God as approval or dismissal of the things that are an affront to him. One of the reasons we are given a passage like this is so that we can be shocked into remembering the incredible mercy of God. Not not primarily the judgment, but the mercy of God. Because most of the time, he doesn't respond this way with immediate judgment. We look at the story of Uzzah and his death. I think it points us to the mercy of God. The incredible mercy of God just as much or maybe more than his judgment. Keep moving. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. Probably the understatement of the century right there. David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. I think these verses here are crucial to understand David's first attempt into, or in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. After first responding with anger at God, David next responds with fear. And this isn't a holy trembling, holy reverence. This is legitimate terror. He doesn't want anything to do with the ark. And so he finds the nearest farmhouse and he drops off the ark and says, have fun, good luck, and he runs away. And yet, look what happens. God isn't done in this moment because if verse seven warns us to take seriously the gravity of God's presence in our midst, here in verses 10 and 11, we see God's intention for his people with his presence. We look at the rest of the Bible and you see 1 Chronicles and this description of Obed-Edom. He loved the Lord. He was passionate about worshiping and serving the Lord with every fiber of his being. And we see here that when we honor the Lord as king, when we're obedient to him, there's this unfathomable blessing that he pours out on his people. Here we see that this invitation isn't just for a select few. It's not for the inner circle, but Obed-Edom is called a Gittite, and it's repeated over and over and over. A Gittite is a person from Gath. He's a Philistine, Israel's mortal enemies, and God is lavishing blessing on this man because God wants people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue to come into his family And I think what we see here is is a little bit of a glimpse of God's original plan for his creation. You go back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, you see God created humanity to live with him, to dwell with him. You see God created us not as his slaves, not as his servants, but as his image bearers. And because we are his image bearers, he created us to dwell with him, and not just to dwell with him, but actually to rule alongside of him over all the rest of his creation. 
what a place of endless joy and unbelievable good. And doesn't God here, as he's lavishing blessings upon Obed-Edom, do that very same thing? Here's a man who, who though he, this is a far cry from Eden, and yet he's dwelling with God. And because he's dwelling with God, God is pouring out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And Obed-Edom sees, and we see, God's original plan for us. When we get to the end of this first section, we have to hold these two truths in tension. We have to hold this this reality of, of the awesomeness, the holiness of this God. We have to approach him with this holy reverence in awe of his holiness, that the closer we come to this God, the more aware of our sin we become, the more aware of the impossible gap that's set between him and us, that this God is not one to be trifled with, And yet, even as we stand in awe of this God, we also stand in awe of his plan for his creation to dwell with us, to bless us so we can experience joy forevermore. That's David's first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And we might ask, well, does David learn? Does he learn his lesson here? That's where we see his second attempt, starting in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So we see three months have gone by. David is made aware of God's blessing upon Obed-Edom, and this is an important lesson for David here, that God's blessing of Obed-Edom is a message to David and really to all of Israel. It's a message to us as well from God, that when you dwell with me in obedience, when you show me appropriate honor, you will experience endless joy. And so David resolves to do what he had originally set out to do. He brings the ark to Jerusalem to symbolize the king of glory reigning over his people. And in all likelihood, David approaches this moment the exact same way as he did the last time. We see in verse 15 that all of Israel, there's this massive crowd, has come out again. And yet this time we're actually told a little bit more information about what's taking place here with David. David, we are told, is dressed in a linen ephod. This is essentially a a plain white robe. Uh, It's worn under your clothes. This is the typical dress of priests before they would put their priestly garments on. Um, But it wasn't exclusive to the priests. Probably the best way that I could think of this uh, in modern day terms would be like wearing a white undershirt like I have on underneath this. And then just, you know, nondescript pants. We don't wear underpants. Uh, We do. Why did I say that? What on earth? My goodness. Can we cut? Please forget that. Um, I knew I was going to get myself in trouble with this passage. A white undershirt and simple pants is what I meant to say. And that's all I said. Oh, that's funny. All right. Uh, 
More, I have this written down, more significant than his clothes, however, is his attitude. So that's the only thing you're going to take away from this morning. More significant than his clothing choice is his attitude. David was angry with God in verse 8. Then he was terrified with God in verse 9. And now he's rejoicing with God in verse 12. But he's not just rejoicing, he's also repentant. Because we see that he's offering sacrifices on this journey to Jerusalem. In short, what we see here from David is that he's worshiping, he's rejoicing, he's repentant, he's dancing. I, this morning before the sermon, I, uh, before the service, I decided to watch um, the clip from Hitch where uh, Kevin James's character is dancing. And, and you know how, if you've seen that movie, Will Smith says, this is how you're supposed to dance. You're supposed to dance like this. Just keep it right here the whole time, right? And, and uh, Kevin James's character, he's, he's tossing pizzas up in the air, and he's doing the Q-tip and that kind of thing. Um, that joy that we see from that show, from Kevin James, is, is kind of the same thing, this exuberant expression is what we see from David in this moment. He's, he's not being subtle. He's, you know, he's not just keeping it right here. He's, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's undignified, to use the language of a popular song. And here we catch David's heart in this moment. He's, he's so overcome with the goodness of God that he can't help but dance. And he's not alone either. It would have been unlikely culturally for one person to be dancing by themselves. And so there's probably this whole host of people who are absolutely overwhelmed with the goodness of God that they are, they're dancing, they cannot contain themselves. And it's this day of incredible ecstasy and great rejoicing for all of Israel, except for one person. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We'll come back to Michael here in a moment. Take a look at the rest of this celebration. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. So they get to Jerusalem, and that's where the real party begins in all seriousness. David, we're told, makes these burnt offerings. These were sacrifices. A burnt offering is a sacrifice as a form of repentance from sin. And then he also makes these peace offerings. Peace offerings are not like burnt offerings. Peace offerings, only a very small part of the animal is consumed in a peace offering. Most of the animal is actually given back to the person and it's used as a, a celebration meal. It was a way for the people of God to celebrate God's goodness and to enjoy that goodness as a feast with one another. And that's exactly what we see take place here. David blesses all the people, and then he distributes this food to all the men and women because of the great joy that comes from following the Lord. And everyone returns home, and it's a wonderful way to end the chapter, except the chapter's not over. 
David returns home. Notice the beginning here, and we won't talk about this, but notice David's intention for when he returns home. It says this, and David returned to bless his household. So that's his intention. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So here's David, he's, he's going home, he's, he's intent on blessing his family in the exact same way that he blessed all of Israel, but before he can even enter into the household, his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, meets him and berates him because of his behavior. And we see the reason why Michael despised David in her heart, verse 16, here we see it, it's because she believed David was acting in a fashion that was unworthy of his office. And some people interpret Michael's words here as, as saying that David was dancing naked. And based off of what I accidentally said, you might think that's what I think too. It's not. <laughs> For starters, the text actually tells us what David was wearing. He was dressed simply and plainly. Instead, what I think Michael is saying is that David's dress is inappropriate for someone of his office. In other words, David wasn't dressed with the royal robes of the king, but it was instead dressed as a commoner. He was dressed as everyone else. And how dare the king dress in such a way? Michael is the daughter of Saul. Saul, the former king of Israel, well, one thing we saw throughout 1 Samuel with Saul was how concerned Saul was with his appearance how concerned he was with what other people thought of him. And Michael has this view of what a king is supposed to be, and she says, how dare you, David, act in a way that is unbecoming of your office? And this actually makes sense of, of David's dancing as well. This is the only time in ancient Near Eastern literature where we see a king dance. The only time in history kings watch people dance. They don't dance themselves. Such an act was below a king. And so Michael is seeing David's action, and David's probably leading the procession, dancing with joy for the Lord. And she sees him, and she's embarrassed for him, and that embarrassment becomes anger with him because he's acting in a way where he throws his dignity away in order to have passion for the God of his salvation. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Notice how David basically responds. He basically says, I'm not your father. And I care far more about what the Lord thinks of me than what other people do. That's David's heart here. David is looking at his life, all of life, from a completely different direction than Michael. Notice what Michael says in verse 20. Michael is concerned with how David was acting 
before the eyes of his servants, female servants. Verse 20. So Michael has this view of life focused on before people, other people. But for David, his sole concern is not about other people. He's talking in verse 21 about a life that is not before others, but is before the Lord. And David here understands that at the end of the day, the acclaim of the world means nothing without the approval of the king of glory. And so he resolves to do whatever it takes to live in light of the reality that there is a true king. There's a true God. And he is worthy of our worship and praise. And that, I think, is the heart of 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is a chapter that is primarily concerned with living a life for the approval of God and not for others. We see how we live a life for the approval of God and not for others. If there's just one truth we take from this passage this morning, I hope it's that, that a life lived for the approval of God will worship him with gravity and gladness. That's what we see in this chapter that David is, is concerned with his life, live for the approval of God, and he worships with gravity. He learns that the hard way, but also with incredible gladness. David is concerned how God sees his actions. He doesn't care about how other people see his actions. At the beginning of this chapter, David's disobedience leads to disaster, and it's clear through judgment that as we approach this glorious God, we have to do it with gravity. That we cannot begin to fathom the incredible weight of glory of this God, and yet that gravity has to be filled with gladness. You look at the gospel, and how can you not be glad? How can it not lead us to joy when we consider the lengths that this God went to in order to bring us into his family? A life lived for the approval of God worships him with gravity and gladness. And so as we close, we just ask ourselves, is that true of me? Is that true of me? Am I living for the approval of God or for the approval of others? What rules your heart? What's your primary motivation in life? What's the rubric through which you make decisions? The Apostle Paul this was his motivation in virtually every single thing that he did, to stand before God approved. And throughout his letters, we see this heart. To borrow a phrase from David, Paul only cared about how he stood before the Lord. Paul, just like David, did not care for the judgment of others. What about you? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. How might we live for the approval of this God? Well, just as this chapter states, we would do well to start by asking, do I grasp the gravity of God's holiness? How holy this God is? I'm reminded of a quote from Annie Dillard on the gravity of God's holiness. It says this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? 
Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? We should all be wearing crash helmets to church. Ushers should be issue out life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our seats. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. When you gather in worship on a Sunday morning, what consumes your heart? Is it the the glory and the majesty of this God that we come to to worship? Are you aware of the weight of your sin, the weight of God's incredible glory? Or is your mind consumed with other things? Are you thinking about the tasks you still have to get done before tomorrow morning? Maybe you're thinking about things from yesterday. Have you prepared your heart to gather in worship before you walk in the door? Do you grasp the gravity of God's holiness? But it would be wrong for us to only gather in gravity. We also gather in gladness. And we would do well to ask ourselves, do I gather, do I respond to the glory of God with gladness? Are you ever moved by the word of God? Ever overcome with joy at the gospel. God makes each of us in a different way. The way I express joy and gladness is different than my wife. It's different than each of you. It's different than my kids. My kids dance with joy. I dance and get hurt. <laughs> gladness looks different. But is it present? About 12 years ago, I was at a football game at Kinnick Stadium where uh, University of Iowa plays, and the weather was absolutely terrible. It was actually the first game in Iowa's history where they delayed the game because of the weather. Since then, there's actually been another game that got delayed. It was in Ames, and Iowa won that game too, um, just, just in case you were wondering about that. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with this. Um, at one point, the, the rain is coming down in sheets, just pouring. And I'm standing there with my brother-in-law, and we had terrible seats, and so we're at the very top of the stadium. And the rain picks up. And you know what people did? They got louder. They got louder and louder. They didn't leave. There was this insane energy in the stadium because of rain and joy from football. And I was astonished because people were glad to be there. And I'm not one of those people who says you need to be as excited about church as you are about football. Please don't. I don't want you chaining out defense in the middle of my sermon. (laughs) Please don't do that. But when's the last time that we were moved by the gospel, by the word of God? Does gladness have a place in your worship? Earlier in our service, we read Psalm 24, and we did that intentionally because it's hard not to see the parallels here between Psalm 24 and this chapter. Psalm 24 talks about who can enter into the presence of God, someone who has clean hands, a pure heart, 
open up your gate, open up you gates, and welcome in the King of Glory. This song, singing to Jerusalem, welcome in your King. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has established it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let us be a people who live for the approval of this king of glory by worshiping him with gravity and gladness. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. God, you are worthy. of all glory and honor and praise. You are worthy to be approached with holy reverence and trembling and to have your people respond with gladness for what you have done for us. God, you are worthy of being the only one whose approval matters to us. Help us toward that end, God. It's in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory we pray these things. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.